0: next chapter podcasts
1: hi welcome back to how i got greenlit i'm alex Legion, your host and uh, this thanks for joining us today is going to be part two of our talk with david irving my former nyu professor at uh, the film school tish formerly known as tish i think still tish he is also a filmmaker of many films, including Chud Two and uh, a host of others that we talk about. And um, he's bringing a film, a B-side for us today, called uh, Freaks by Todd Browning. You know, I think um, he's still he's still shooting with all you know guns blazing. I mean, Freaks is not a easy thing to swallow. I mean, it kind of freaked me out. I hope you saw it. If you're listening to this, it's kind of a spoiler fest. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been aware of that movie for a long time, and it kind of freaked me the fuck out. So um, I never quite dug in. And, you know, I guess that's what a good horror movie does, right? It's not particularly scary. Uh, there's no jump scares in a traditional sense. I mean, it's Todd Browning. It's the 30s. Uh, you know, the original Dracula has a gothic gloom to it but it's not inherently scary i guess maybe to modern audiences but something about freaks really cuts to the bone of what it is to be a human being and to be especially for those of us who have any anxieties about our health or aging or the nature of life and death you know, I mean, I'm sure you talk to people in your life and you know, you sit around the, the table, the, the bar at late night, the bullshit session in your college dorm room, you know, like, is there a fate, fate worse than death and maybe, you know, having no limbs or to be one of these freaks in the movie uh, there, but for the grace go I, you know, it's uh, that's the horror. Right is when you, when you're in, when you're watching a horror movie or a thriller, and they get you when you're in it, because you're imagining, you're projecting yourself into that world. Hopefully, projecting yourself into the protagonist at least. That's one of my favorite books. Uh, Anybody who's a filmmaker out there, understanding comics. I know it doesn't make sense. It's not about, you know, understanding how to watch. stand-up comics but rather it's about visual uh, presentation of information so it's by a comic artist scott mcleod and so he's discussing you know why you put a panel on a certain page and a certain size and placement and so on and so forth but what you realize is it it's easily storyboarding right it's about visual storytelling of any stripe and he talks about hieroglyphics and goes into you know the history of it and the uh you know the sky people of peru where you can't see the picture from ground level you can only see that it's a giant tarantula from half a mile in spain in the sky from an airplane but they were making pictures to the gods but Meaning in this case, the, the reference point was in projecting yourself into the protagonist, the, uh, the comic Tom Tom, which you know, became The Adventures of Tintin uh, by Spielberg, the 3D animated film. When you look at the comic, it's old, right? And so it's French and the, you know, the artist made the decision to make a photorealistic world, but the main character is kind of cartoony and his eyes have no pupils so the child reading the book or this comic strip can become Tintin, and there's no intermediary it's easily projected upon anyway so can't help but watch freaks and be like well thank goodness i wasn't born with a malady and worse yet to be in a world where uh i'm so um you know unaccepted by my society that I have to you know use it to monetize it right and really just add to the shame of it we're great these humans you know Uh, the fate worse than death back uh, for those who were playing along uh, as always is banishment because um, in the olden days that was sure death but in a sad way in a lonely way no one loves you no one hugs you no one wants to know you we're going to erase your name from the records you never existed to them and maybe to you and me it's better than a you know an arrow through the head or whatever the quick you know hanging or crucifixion or whatever the your latest uh corporal punishment because at least they cared enough to kill you in the public square right and on that fun note, folks, thanks for watching and playing and listening. Enjoy. Your cast in Shud 2 Larry Linville, Norman Fell, Robert Vaughn. I mean, come on, give me a couple. June Lockhart, Richard Simmons,
0: Bianca Jagger.
1: I mean, what? Unbelievable. Tell me, tell, tell, do tell. What was that lunchroom like?
0: Well, you know actors like to work um uh, the script was good um we had no trouble you know enticing them all to be in the movie and um you know the being a comedy, you want comic actors in there who you know know what they're doing and um getting Robert Vaughn was a real coup because he of course is you know a wonderful actor um and he really caught the humor of it um. You know, when you cast you just trying to get the best people possible.
1: Eat them up, beat 'em up.
0: No, no, no. These are chut.
2: Cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers prepare for horror, laughs, and thrills in this outrageous sequel to the home video hit Chud. Chud two. But the Chud.
1: That was sort of in the post airplane era where guys that were traditionally more serious men were were kind of a wink and a nod to their screen person like Robert Vaughn a wink and a nod to their screen personas right kind of they understood the the ironic twist to give you for their for the performance that's great that's fun so at this time now you're you're back at NYU you rejoin the ranks of the teaching staff of NYU and you're kind of going back and forth is that the is that the formula now?
0: Um, well, it, before we get there, Alex, I just want to say that the biggest casting issue on Chud 2 was the, the casting of Bud.
1: <laughs> Bud the Chud. The...
0: Because the producers said Bud has no lines. W- why would we need to cast a, a major actor? And uh... I wanted Garrett Graham to play the part of Bud because Garrett is not only a wonderful actor, but he's very physical. Uh, he does comedy very well. Um and, but he wanted he wanted a good salary. And the producers kept saying, just get an extra to play the part. And I had to explain to them that, you know, Boris Karlov doesn't say anything in Frankenstein, but he <laughs> right. makes the movie. As far as I'm good concerned, argument. in a horror film, right. it's your monster that makes the film. Uh, the, the more charismatic the monster is, the more exciting the movie is. Uh, Bela Lugosi in Dracula. Um, it, it took, I just couldn't, get it through to the producers that this was important. So they wouldn't let me cast Garrett. And we ended up casting an actor who ends up playing the mailman in the film, uh, Rich Scheider, also a wonderful actor. Um, And then somehow the producers saw the light and they said, okay, you can have Garrett. So I had to, uh, you know, firing an actor is one of the worst things a director has to do. I did it with Paige Hanna. I had to tell Rich Scheider I was giving the part to, Garrett. Rich was a gentleman, had no problem with it. Um, but I was very happy to get Garrett because I think Garrett, you know, is the one who makes the movie work.
2: He certainly—he just has a look too. and uh, Those eyes. Uh, a, a resume, uh, you know, just
1: what, clearly yeah. a veteran actor. One of those guys. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's, that's the, uh, like anything, you, you got no monster, you got no movie with this kind of genre, right? comedy or or straight horror like monster doesn't work movie doesn't work um well that
2: was that big compliment alex that we got from uh berserker when dino
1: walked up to us and said <laughs> i like your monster and that was it <laughs> we, david we tried to make a movie uh, a horror movie years ago and uh, we got dino de laurentis interested so that was a that was a personal <laughs> he came to like a screening
2: of a short yeah. of a, like a short we did I and like he just came monster. up He just came up and said, I like your monster. And he left. And I was like, well. Never made the movie. We're like, wait,
1: where's your checkbook? Um, But uh... (laughs) so uh, where did you shoot, Chad? Was that a New York production? or
0: Uh, All in LA. You know, uh, it was a local contract, so it had to all be within 50 miles of downtown LA.
1: Yes. Uh, Which is what, isn't that what TMZ means, Ryan? The 30 mile zone? 30 mile zone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and, and so now it makes more sense. That's right. It was, it was, it was a, it was a, a take on Chud. So that makes a lot more sense because you did have comedic chops. It was like, Hey, this guy can interpret a horror movie in an interesting way. So I, it, it is more of a, an obvious choice to, to get somebody like you. Um, so, so you're in New York uh it's still got a a a vibrant film community you're you're based in new york i mean and it's still got a vibrant independent film community uh your family's there your wife is studying um and you're 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 starting to do more with nyu right is that the late 80s early 90s
0: yeah well i as i said i had to quit my job but then to go to israel and when i came back uh from doing chud 2, i um but when i came back from doing the fairy tales i went back to nyu um and um just had to start again as an adjunct and work my way up
1: i see so that you lost your place in the in the in the pecking order and and went back and and started work again so uh were you the inventor? So so that was around the time we met. Chud 2 is 89. I, I met you in the early. Oh, but before we do that, I want to talk about Night of the Cyclone, uh, with uh with Chris Christofferson. It is the perfect playground. This is a tourist island. Oh, Ouch!
2: Where any pleasure
1: can be had.
2: People who come here sometimes do things with uh, Their friends and family back home wouldn't understand.
1: What was that like?
0: Yeah, I think when I came back from um, Chud 2, I um, was also working at a um, Japanese television station, just doing their production managing to make money. Uh, and um, my agent got me an interview to do this film in South Africa, uh, and I was desperate to do another film, and... Um, I didn't think the script was so great, but I think a lot of times the paycheck and the ability to get out from under the thumb of Japanese overlords uh, can be a great motivator. Um, so I flew to South Africa to meet with the producer to, uh, to direct the movie. Um, the movie was written by a travel writer, and um, he wrote the movie for the island Mauritius in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And I flew to Mauritius. I flew to South Africa to meet the company. It was a a British company in South Africa, in Johannesburg. And then we flew to Mauritius to do the location scout. And I was there with the DP and the production designer and the production manager and the producer. And literally every location in the script was right there, right in front of me. It was just, you know, a dream come true. Um, and I said to the producer, I said, you have permits to shoot in all these places, right? He said, well, we're working on it. <laughs> I said, well, that's, that's really not good. Um, I said, can we talk to the people who are going to give us the permits so I can be sure that the locations we're looking at are. Now, I don't know if you know, but uh, Mauritius is a basically a suburb of India. So it's an Indian government. And so we met everybody up to the prime minister, and they all said, uh, "Oh, you get your permits, no problem, no problem." And so, in a book I wrote on film directing, I have a whole chapter dedicated to the word "no problem," <laughs> because the minute you hear the words "no problem," problems. you know you have a big problem. <laughs> what What is the name of it, b- before fact, you
1: go ahead? What What is the ne- title of your film, uh, your your book, David?
0: Uh, Fundamentals of Film Directing,
1: which I read in school. Uh, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, uh, no problem means problem.
0: Right. So we, we ended up shooting the movie in the Comores, which is in the northern tip of Madagascar. And I can tell you that there the term for no problem is Kavatsi Tabu. So you just, as a director, you just have to listen for the local term for no problem because that's when you know you've got a problem. So we couldn't shoot in Mauritius, which was a shame. Um, we ended up shooting in the Comores because the, parent company had hotels there. None of the actors, of course, would go to South Africa because it was during apartheid. Um, so we had to shoot the movie in the Camores. Now, the Camores is basically a fourth world country. There's You can't buy a nail there. Uh, the largest cause of death is being hit on the head by coconuts. It's just a really bizarre place. Um, but because they have these tourist hotels there, we were able to house everybody and feed everybody and use that as our base and build sets around it. Um, my big problem with the movie was that it was not a great script. And of course, if you don't have a good script, you can't make a good movie. Um, and it was after that film that I said, I'm just not going to do another film as a director, unless it's a script I'm really passionate about.
1: I have a script called no problem, David, I'm sending it to you. I want to see if you're interested. As long
0: as, long as it can be translated <laughs> into Camorian. <I'm>
1: <laughs> so Chris Christopherson, no problem.
0: No problem. I mean, um Chris, You know, he was, you know, the the way they do casting is here are 10 actors. If you can get one of these actors to be in the movie, we'll we'll give you the money. Chris said yes. So he came to the And Ryan, have you
1: ever heard of such a thing?
2: Yes. We do that every every
1: day, David. List upon list. Nothing's changed.
0: That's right. So I was very happy he did it. Um, I needed a love interest for him. And my mother's agent in Paris at the time uh, had me meet with Marissa Berenson. Uh, which, uh, so she played the love interest and otherwise it was all local South African crew and cast. And, uh, we just shipped everybody up to the Comores and made the movie. The, you know, the whole movie, the conclusion took place on a boat in the middle of the Indian ocean in a cyclone. Oh, good Lord. The movie was called Perfume of the Cyclone at the time. And, um. Of course, I had to learn when you shoot in the Southern Hemisphere, everything goes the opposite direction water-wise, which is why they call it a cyclone and not a tornado. Um, And um, I had never shot on the ocean before, on water. And that's the great thing about directing movies is you get to learn all these Things that you can do. So That's job. I just know, know about shooting in
2: the water. How many times have we had? How many times have we had directors on talking about shooting on boats? This is this is always a and big, always this is like traumatized for it. I've yeah. never done it. There's trauma. There's there's blood to pay for this.
0: But I did know that you cannot shoot on a boat with a 35 millimeter camera in the middle of a cyclone. That would be a recipe <laughs> for death.
1: problem so
0: i said to the producers i said if you send me to malta where they have a tank or london i can shoot a cyclone in the water the budget didn't approve that so i just rewrote it to be at the top of a in a mansion at the top of a hilltop (laughs) oh there you go that
1: makes sense that makes sense (laughs) night of the hot tub this is much more manageable yes i wonder if chris brought a guitar
0: he did he brought a guitar he would sing we played poker every that's week. amazing he was, he was a lot of fun he's a, a real gentleman
1: interesting guy very done a lot of stuff his
2: interview in the documentary the the country documentary series is him talking is fascinating i mean he had such a stu- i mean just musically speaking he was known he's known as like one of the best writers in the world of, of music
1: uh, yeah, lyrics I, I, I should say yeah,
0: i had a fantasy because he was a road yeah. scholar and when chris came we'd rewrite the script and make it a work of genius <laughs> <and I'd> just...
1: <laughs> didn't happen he,
0: you do a lot of things to deceive yourself when yes trying to get things off the
1: ground uh, yes and
2: did you stay in touch with him afterwards or no i did not oh, interesting
1: um, and, and so, uh, you know, trying to keep on our, keep, keep on target here. Uh, would you say your green lit moment was, was making the great Texas dynamite chase was at the beginning of the, of the film journey for you? I know you made a lot of shorts, but, or, or was it working on rumble still skin? Like where, where was the moment where you walked on the set and you're like, Wow. Like we're making a movie, like there's a big crew or there's a big stunt or there's a big, you know, uh, sequence. Like what what was the moment that you your, your your breath was taken away? Was it working with a certain actor that you were a big fan of as a child or something?
0: Yeah, I, I would say it was probably Great Texas mm-hmm. Dynamite Chase. I mean, that was the real deal. It was Corman. It was a real movie, you know, big actors, um, a lot of car stunts. um, You know, I would rather have been the director, but I work very closely with Michael. I mean, I was a good producer for Michael because I think the producer's main job is protecting the director from the rest of the world so that he or she can do the directing of the movie
1: well before we move ahead i just got to say did you ever get a chance to work with ed harris i just uh, showed a friend of mine uh, the right stuff for the first time and she was blown away and i i was blown away at how well that movie held up and how great a performer he is uh is that
0: he's amazing he um we were friends in college and in grad school and uh, we did some shows some plays together afterwards his girlfriend at the time, uh, Robin Ginsburg, we were all very close, uh, socialized, um, haven't seen Ed in years, but actually still spend a lot of time with his, uh, with Robin. So she keeps us in touch with him about, you know, what, uh, uh what nice,
1: he's doing. nice. Um, when, uh, so, so in your mind's eye are, you know, as you become a film instructor, I mean, I guess once a director, always a director, right? You know, like, do you always, are you still writing? Are you still considering doing other film and TV and theater stuff? I mean,
0: Yeah, well, after uh, um, um, Night of the Cyclone, as I said, I just didn't want to, I, I'd scratched that itch. I'd directed six films. I really didn't want to do one unless it was something I was passionate about. Um, so I was teaching and I did buy the rights to a script called Tiptoes, which I really, really liked. It was about... Um, uh, uh, a family that had little people in their family uh, and it was a the, the central theme was about abortion uh, wonderful script um, uh, and um, I bought the I' had known about the script for a long time and I bought the rights uh, from the author um, and uh, then a 9/11 happened so nobody was doing anything uh, and when my option expired the the writer, took the rights back and he directed the movie with Matthew O'Connor. And it's, uh, I never saw the film, but he made his own version of uh, Tiptoe. So that was, that was a little bit of a disappointment. I, I, after that, while I was teaching, I directed about 24 documentaries.
2: That's what I was going to bring up is your documentary work.
0: Yeah. And uh, you know, whether you're doing a documentary or a narrative, you still have to tell a story. Uh, You know, so I kept my hand in the business, you know, directing these pieces, meeting people um and then I ended up getting to go to Singapore for 2 years to run the grad film program for Tisch and then when I came back I wrote 3 novels based on a small school in Ohio creating a relationship with a Chinese university which is what a lot of schools were doing including yeah. NYU um and it was a you know dramedy uh and then I wrote a script based on the first 2 of those novels and i sold it to a chinese company cuz i was living in shanghai during my sabbatical and then we went all over china trying to raise money for it they're still trying to raise money for it i'm not going to quit my day job but that's that would be the next project i would put under my belt did you
2: write that with your experience of going to denison which is in new york columbus yeah
0: it was it's really it's it's about denison and NYU.
2: nice awesome I wondered how you ended up in, in the middle of Ohio or in, near Columbus. You
0: know, I ended up there for two reasons, Ryan. One was that um, um, uh, the guy who took over one of the theaters in San Francisco when my dad left, his name was Bill Bushnell, he studied with a man at Denison named Bill Brasmer, and he recommended that I study there. So that was one reason. The other was I had bo- was born and raised in San Francisco. I've spent my entire life trying to get back to the Bay Area. And so when I went to college, my dad drew a circle around Manhattan where we were living, um, one day's drive from New York. He said you can go to any school within that circle. And so I only looked at schools on the edge of that circle, and Denison was as far west as I could get.
2: (laughs) That question paid off. Yeah,
1: sometimes that's that's how you think. Just gotta get away. Uh, well, before we, uh, before we talk more about NYU and, and, and the academia, I just want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Doug Rosen, um, who was my first boss out here. When I moved out and I graduated NYU and I moved out to LA, uh, you introduced me to your friend, Doug Rosen. How did you guys meet?
0: Doug and I, when I did my, my, my study abroad from, um, Denison in Berlin, Doug was a student there and we've been fast friends
1: ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Doug. Thank you for uh, paying my, (laughs) paying my way for the first six months of my LA adventure. Um, So uh, NYU obviously is, you know, been consistently one of the top, I mean, depending on who you ask, definitely top three, maybe top one, top two, uh, what drew you to them initially? Just, uh, was it, was it a geography question? Like you're in New York and they're the best. So let's get in there. Like, what was it about Tish that it's, you know, inspired you to, to want to be a part of it?
0: Well, first of all, my dad was a teacher. He, he, he taught at San Francisco state for many years before he started his theater company. My my
1: son starting at San Francisco state in the fall.
0: Great school, great school. And, um, um, I was, uh, when I, my wife had moved here and I moved to New York with her, we were doing some plays, I was doing some odd jobs and the sublet on 21st street was from a woman named Carolyn Ducro, who was married to Howard Hessman, who was ended up going to Hollywood to do a lot of TV. Also
1: worked with Brian Robbins on head of the class.
2: That's right. Is that uh, WKRP? Yes, that's Dr. John Fever
1: and very famous uh, actor, comedian.
2: And Caroline had
0: been an adjunct instructor at NYU, so we kept getting her mail from NYU. So a a bubble went off in my head, and I said, I'm going to go down to NYU and pitch a class, and maybe they'll let me teach a class. And so I went down to see Charles Milne, who was the head of the program at the time, and pitched a class on Todd Browning. Oh. And he said, we we don't do cinema studies here. We're a production class. I see you've made movies. Would you like to teach a production class? I said, sure. And that's what got me started there.
1: Nice. And well, now they, subsequent to that conversation, they do have a robust cinema studies uh, classes program and track. Um, And what, uh, did you invent Sight and Sound or was Sight and Sound there when you got there?
0: Sight and Sound is 70 years old. Ah. Um, Scorsese took it and taught
1: it. Wow. So just for everybody out there, uh, it's the first production class you take at NYU. It's called Sight and Sound. And they give you a, I mean, probably now it's video cameras, but at the time they gave you uh, Bolex, uh, not Bolex, um, an equivalent, Aeroflex, Aeroflex, excuse me, Aeroflex, um, 60 Aries, which were the sort of news gathering camera of the time and you would shoot on black and white reversal film with no sound and you had four person teams and you switched, uh, you made four films. So each person got a chance to direct and then you'd pass the, then you'd be the, the DP, then you'd be the, uh, the, uh, um, PA, the gaffer with, you know, the, 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 crew positions for a very small film and, Still, one of my favorite life experiences. One, probably one of my best academic experiences. Learn more in a couple weeks than you know a couple years of uh, of, of other you know academic adventures, misadventures. Um, what's it like now? Like, how do, are they still? Do you put them on the airflex? You te- you learn them on how hard it is to make film versus video, or no,
0: we've gone digital in that class. Boo. Many years ago, uh, they shoot digitally, they cut digitally. We do have cinematography classes where students learn 16, 35, all the cameras. And in the grad film department, they do shoot their very first MOS project on a 16 millimeter camera. Nice. Just to learn that discipline. But in undergrad, sight and sound is totally digital. But except for the, the film technical issues that you had to labor with, Alex, the class has not changed one bit.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, MOS with mid-out sound for those out there.
2: I, I got kind of a, you know, David. Have you seen a difference in um, the makeup of student uh, over the over your career at NYU, like the kind of student that comes or the experience? Are you talking about demographic
1: or like personality? No,
2: no, just they're – because so many people now grow up with basically a camera in their hand, and I just wanted to know if there were, you saw a difference in in the student base, the average yeah, that's student.
0: A, it's a good question, Ryan, because I get it asked a lot, and there are a lot of faculty who, you know, we have a lot of meetings uh, in, as faculty, um, and um, there are a lot of faculty who have a lot of free time on their hands. and my attitude is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But they, there are a lot of faculty who believe that the students today are so advanced. They're just so knowledgeable. They're just, you know, we have to change. Personally, I haven't seen one change that they were as um, uh, uh, unaware as Alex was when he came to school back in the thirties. So I I really enjoy teaching sight and sound because no matter how many bat mitzvahs they've shot on video or short films they've done in high school or
2: YouTube posts or
0: YouTube posts, um, they come to school and in that class they learn the basics. They learn basic film grammar. Um, you know, all the examples that I show are from classic films to show how it can be done. Um, the students, they students know a lot about music. There's no question about it, but in terms of cinema, cinema history, Um, what one can do. I mean, basically with cinema, you're putting one image next to another to create an emotion in the audience. Um, And telling a story, forget about it. I mean, it's so hard to tell a story in, you know, one minute, let alone 90. Um, And so getting them at that very early age, they're not freshmen, they're sophomores, so they're not as green uh, as freshmen. So I get them when they're somewhat sophisticated. They're also not as jaded as juniors where they know everything. Um, so it's, uh, I've been teaching the class for a long time, and it's just, it, it's just a great experience for me to see the students grow and learn and work with each other because collaboration is a big part of our business. It's Absolutely. Yeah. And not one student has ever gone backwards. They always make progress. It's just, it's a, it's an artistic joy to see that grow.
2: Nice. I'm glad to hear that. I'm also glad to hear that you don't get paid to teach. You get paid to go to
1: meetings, I guess. <laughs> Sounds like. <laughs> Teaching's no, the fun agree. part. You They pay you to go to the meetings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny because, you know, we're David, if, if you can believe it, Ryan and I are the old hands on the set now. You know, a lot of the people that we work with are 10, 15, 20 years younger than us. Never touched film. Don't know about film, and I don't mean the film as a as a medium. I mean just the 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 actual nuts and bolts of celluloid, you know. And uh, there is something lost with the 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 preciousness of a take, you know. I mean, you are lim- it's too easy. It's it's, it's, it's
2: too easy now. It, no one you do see thing- that
1: tightening up. That you saw on a set with like, we have one take left on this role and we're going to have to stop down and change them and it's going to take 15 minutes. Now it's like, switch the card, whatever, whatever. So that something has been lost with the film, you know, losing the film.
2: I'm shocked that more directors, young directors that I know that watch their uh, watch a take from the monitor and not from behind camera or next to camera. I'm, I'm shocked at how many people have the director position has been. I, that's just me. I don't know if that's you, Alex, but... Well,
1: do you talk about that, David, about um, in, in maybe, maybe yeah, well, more of the I'm, senior I'm classes? As,
0: yeah, I'm as concerned as you are, because uh, we had the privilege of working with film. You know, uh, another film I recommend to students is called Side by Side, where Keanu Reeves interviews a lot of directors yep. and DPs about the change from photochemical image capture to digital image capture. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of directors who love digital work uh, and, and, you know, wax eloquent about it. Um, I show a clip from the film uh, in which a female DP who went to NYU talks about how when the film runs through the camera, everybody brings their A game. That's right. And with the digital, um, the only way I've been able to convince students to do that is, number one, is I ask them to use a slate. Because the minute you hear, that all of a sudden galvanizes everybody to a certain degree. But the other is I ask the students to use actors rather than each other in films. Because I'm sure when you did your films, Alex, you were using other people from your crew. Uh, A mix, yeah,
1: but mostly just whatever you can grab, your roommate, you, That's whoever. Right. Yeah. But if
0: you if you compel them to use actors, the actor will always come and say, i got to be out of here by 11.30, so you better get it in the can. <laughs> and forces them to pre-visualize and think carefully, yeah. rather than just turn the camera on, go to lunch, and come back and say, I wonder what we got.
1: Yeah, let's leave the gate open for 10 minutes. Well, not only <laughs> that, it's, the, it's in post. You know, like we were uh, we were cutting with a razor blade and taping with with tape together to make an edit, and that for even in the shoot, once you do that once, you know you the next time you shoot something, you get what you want. There's no fussing around because you have to hang up these strips of film and try to find what the hell you're looking for, and it that also is lost. Um, uh it's funny, I remember like leaving NYU and they were pushing in these giant boxes and I said, What's that? And they're like, Oh, it's this thing called avid. So <laughs> So once the genie's out of the bottle, what are you gonna do? But uh and certainly I'd as- love
2: I'd love to set young filmmaker in front of a Steam back right now. Yeah
1: because uh, that thing that thing's pretty intimidating when you first, when you first see it. Yeah, and it, 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 but, it gives you a respect to the whole process. Yeah,
0: in Sight and Sound, it's imperative that the students write their own script, direct their own script, and edit it, because that way they learn about those three jobs. Yeah, yeah. Particularly when you're editing and you can look back and say, what the hell was the writer thinking, you know, Writing twelve camels go through Central Park. I can only, as the director, I can afford one Saint Bernard, and that's it. Right. Um, and then right. in the editing room to say, what were they thinking? Why didn't I get the footage to cut it together? So, you know, even though very few directors cut their own films, uh, in school you have the opportunity to learn from that process.
2: There's three. You make three movies every movie: the movie every. you write, the movie you direct, and the movie that comes out, which is the one that you edit. And that's, that's right. I'd say that almost on every set, everybody, this, you, we get one shot at this, but I think that's what digital does. It kind of takes away that uh, razor's edge. I mean, no pun intended figuratively. Yeah, no pun intended. It does because I think people will sit there and take seven. Just bang it out. Oh,
1: just keep going. We'll just keep hosing it and get seven cameras. Every production nowadays
2: just seems to get put like it's a push. It's a push. It's a push. And I
1: and this now rolling multiple cameras is just another layer of like fire hosing. Yeah,
2: it's a lot without consequence. Yeah. (laughs)
1: If you're enjoying this episode, please check out other episodes in our archive at howigotgreenlit.com, including this one, one of my favorites, The Blast from the Past.
3: Well, I I sort of equate it with like big pop hits compared with punk rock or whatever the new music is. Um, I think there's always gonna be big one hits that are gonna come out. Um, With that said, I think you can have a hodgepodge. I always think something creative and Radical and Fucked Up will come out in original that can compete and do well against the marvels of the world, but they're never, I don't, except Guardians of the Galaxy, which sort of like took an interesting shot and kind of gave a bit of, you know, in the Deadpools of the world gave a bit of individuality with their brand. Um, Does that mean those original ideas get eaten up into the bigger machine? Sometimes they do, but I always think that as of now, you know, original ideas like Lucy and what have you can coexist with the big giant marvels of the world, but I just don't think one is gonna cancel the other out. I always think that there is gonna be an appetite for something original that's gonna come out because we just get sick of hearing the same song 14 times. I mean, what happens when you hear a bad song 14 times? You obviously like it because it's all you hear in a way. So I think that's why these original movies will come out in television shows and, um, you know, they won't they won't compete with um, the big brand, but I think they'll always survive. Um, that's my opinion.
1: And if you like that, there's many others where it came from at the How I Got archive, with our good friends and partners. Next chapter podcast. And they're nice enough to keep it archived for us. So please check out all the other episodes. We've recorded uh, two seasons now. So uh, enjoy that, and let's get back to the show with David Irving discussing Fritz. Well, so David, yeah, I wanted to to segue us into into talking about the film. I, and by the way, I love that you were going to teach or, or propose to teach a class about todd browning um uh is there any is there anything we we didn't cover that you want to talk about in your career or teaching career or did we did we did we, did we nail it all right we did it. okay um yeah i just <laughs> want to i want to
2: i want to pay reverence to your time commitment that you've given us yes, today thank you. We'll um, so. david thank you i don't want to
1: go too far over we, but we appreciate it it's a it's a rich vein to tap into so um yeah, so uh, the film that David brought is called Freaks, directed by Todd Browning, and we do this thing here called the B sides. We we want to introduce people to obviously huge directors like Todd Browning, but not the one we know them for. So, David, give us a little give us a little background on Todd Browning. What would most people know him for?
0: Actually, uh, in terms of violating your B side uh, theory, Freaks is probably his most well known film. Um, but uh, Dracula would be the one that you'd have to pick with Bela Lugosi.
2: Yeah.
1: I am Dracula. I would call Dracula. I mean, I, you're the academic, but I just think in terms of the average person, I mean, that's such an indelible image of the, the Bela Lugosi Dracula, that, that maybe that's the one that's called, traveled far and wide. Yeah,
0: and his performance taught us all that it's so easy to give comments and criticism because all you have to do is say, blah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I could talk for two hours just about that film and Bella Lugosi and talk about capturing lightning in a bottle. I mean, he was never as good as, as, as in that film, right? I mean, what a strange story. I don't want to get off on that tangent, but what a, what a bizarre tale that the making of that film and that guy and just, it's almost like Nosferatu also, right? You have this like weird uh, blending of the character and the actor and the moment in time. And it's almost like this gestalt that doesn't quite exist either in film or reality, right? I mean, you had, uh, what was his name? Max Schenk uh, in Nosferatu. Uh, didn't really do any other film, and that's he. You know, he acted very strange and had you know, a bizarre production. Same thing with Bella Lugosi was never quite as great as he was in that film. But um, let's talk about Todd Browning a little bit and sort of lead into how Freaks came about. So Freaks, most people have seen some of it. There's clips. It's a pop culture. It's on the landscape, and of course, probably the most popular is, you know, one of us, one of us. You know, that the film and TV and pop culture has 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 made that. I mean, the Simpsons like that's been referenced in almost everything over the last, you know, hundred years since the film came out. We'll make her one of us, a loving cop, a loving cop. We accept a one of us. We accept a one of us. Booba gobble, booba gobble. We accept her, we accept her. What what you know? What was the landscape uh, for Todd Browning in the in the early 30s? What 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 did film look like then? And why was this such a radical departure?
0: Well, I mean, Todd Browning was a you know a, a craftsman. He did you know many many silent films. Um, he was of course very famous for uh, working um, on many many films with Lon Chaney. Uh, who was a very very popular silent uh, film star, um, and uh, when sound came in, it was a tough transition transition for a lot of uh, actors and directors. But uh, Todd Browning was able to uh, make the transition to uh, a few films. Um, you know, he's he's got an interesting career. He you know, like all artists, you know, had his ups and downs. Um, uh, of course, he had you know such wonderful success with Dracula. He was able to uh, extend that. But the reason why I'm attracted to the movie Freaks is um, strictly for one reason, which is that I've always been uh, in awe that a director in seventy minutes could take the audience's allegiance to the whole people. The you know the um, uh, the strong man and the beautiful trapeze artist. Right. Who, when we see a movie, those are the people. Those are be.
1: always these hero and heroine, right? Of a circus right. milieu, yeah.
0: And all of the freaks in the movie, which normally we uh, recoil from, turn them into the heroes. For him in 70 minutes to flip the whole story, that you go from the heroes being the whole people to the heroes being the deformed people, um, I just. Uh, to this day, I just find it an amazing feat that a director could have that dexterity to do something like that.
1: And this was coming on the heels of Dracula. He had a big hit. He had the power to make this film and actually try something different, right? They gave him the, you know, some might say the rope to hang himself. But, uh, you know, it was not a, a big hit at the time. It was not.
0: No, I mean, he, he, he had a lot of experience working in circuses. Uh, so he knew about that world. The film was banned for 40 years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which is sort of a badge of courage in the in the history books, but probably very difficult to live through. And why was it banned?
0: Uh, I just think that the, you know, the imagery, um, I don't think it had to do so much with the story that the freaks became the heroes, but just, you know, um, having a pinhead on screen, you know, uh, it's like what's going on right now with the, you know, the all the alt right, you know, that they're just things that they just don't want their children to be exposed to. Um, Got to burn Dr. some books. Dr.
1: Seuss. Oh my God. Well, Gotta burn you know, some it, books. It, it, it brings up a, a it brings up a, a, a larger conversation I was having this weekend. Um, and it's about how politics and art are sort of linked, right? You know, we were, we were talking about how, the fascists uh, uh you know hitler was an artist i don't know if people most probably people know this hitler was a was a painter he was a failed artist didn't get into nyu film and you know look what that got us right david but no i mean he was a failed painter and architect and um he had an aesthetic and the fascist had an aesthetic and it was a very neoclassic uh you know Roman Greek statues and heroes and villains and black and white and good and evil and very, uh, literal. And, uh, you know, you talked about Max Ernst. I mean, they, they labeled that kind of art degenerate art. Right. And, uh, because it was uh, new and it was different and it was playing with form and it was, it was questioning the rules of aesthetics uh it was uh, uh, it was unacceptable politically right so here we are the early 30s the rise of fascism and here's a movie that as you said turned uh storytelling visual storytelling on its ear the people that are the most beautiful on the screen uh, visually are the are the most are the most ugly inside right and and vice versa and that's that's almost a um, that and this was pre-code, right? Thirty-one was pre-Hays code, is that right? Yeah. So he was even just the visuals themselves were transgressive, and the notion that a, a little man could be mar- have been married to a uh, full-sized uh, adult woman was in itself kind of pushing the envelope. Whether or not there was a code, right? I mean, was this cited as one of the films that? Necessitated a code, would you say?
0: Mm, it, it probably could have factored in um, most of the haze codes had to do with with sex. And you're making a good point, Alex, about you know the idea of a little person and a big person um, having you know physical relationship. Well, that's the
1: poster. Can a full grown woman truly love a midget? And she's kissing the uh the, what we know to be an a, an adult man who happens to be a little person but the visual of the poster looks like she's kissing a child i mean it's it's yeah, it's heady I, stuff i
0: don't know the history of the Hayes code uh, but um it was it was all in the zeitgeist at that time
2: i think part of the, i think part of the reason why it was banned was definitely the there's a real heavy undertones of sexuality in the movie and I, I, think that's probably one of the reasons. Also, I think it was kind of like the soup of all of it uh, put together that people had a problem with.
1: And- uh, do you think they also thought that perhaps uh, the you know quote unquote freaks, the the the, I don't know what we call them now, the differently abled actors and performers, um, was there was there a sense that he was exploiting them for their their you know their disabilities or? Because that's not the theme of the film. That he treats them as you said as eventually the heroes, but maybe from a distance, did people see this and go, "Oh, well, he's he's mocking these people that don't have arms, or they that they, they're 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 little, or they you know they have the, as you said the what is it called the encephalitis the the pinhead ism where that was that part of the problem is that it's it it was a perception he was exploiting their disabilities.
0: Yeah, I mean people. You know, will bring all kinds of their own personal relationships to the story and uh, find a way to twist it. Um, I just think it's so ironic that those, those images of those people who are supposedly deformed, um, which can be repulsive to people, uh, it'd be hard to make an argument for that because Todd Browning himself seemed to be so in love with having those people have the spotlight and showing their humanity rather than seeing them as monsters.
1: Yeah. They were love. they loved each other. They were good friends. There, there was a positive aspect. I mean, just take it. So let's forget the cultural uh, let's say backlash. I mean, just take it as a film. Like what makes it, what, why, why, why would, why would you elevate this film in your personal, I mean, you were going to teach a class uh, on Todd Browning. Like what is it about Todd Browning that we, we need to know as, as film appreciation?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, his last film, which, of course, is a very strong film, too, called Devil Doll with John Barrymore, um, you know, there's a constant theme throughout uh, his piece about, you know, uh, deformed people, people who are different um, uh, and freaks in particular. Uh, the reason why it appeals to me is um, that uh, all those uh, fascinating things in life, um It's like, you know, the the monsters, you know, the minute you shine a light of humanity on the monster, like the way Hugo talks about the Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, all of a sudden they don't become monsters anymore. And um, for, again, for Browning to do that in 70 minutes and with that background, I just, I've never seen a filmmaker do something like that.
2: Do you, do you consider him, I mean, because he worked in the horror genre so much, do you, I mean, it seems to me like he is almost like a godfather of the genre. No,
0: no question. No question. Uh, I mean, I, you know, he's one of my favorite American directors and I'm sure most of my students would know who he is, but I'm sure that the people who make these films in Hollywood and around the world, they're, they're familiar with his work. He, he does have a, a strong influence even, you know, after his death. And was,
1: and when was one of these entertainment figures that bridged the gap between vaudeville and theater and even this freak shows and, and brought it into the burgeoning art of cinema. Right. I mean, he, he, a lot of what we see in this film, most uh, audiences, they may have seen them at a, at, you know, a county fair or something, but to see them all gathered in this film must've been quite a, quite a scene for the, you know, 1931 uh, cinematic audiences, right? So it was sort of a lot to take. He was ahead of his time in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I'm, I am I'm. I know we're getting close to the end, so I want to yeah. conclude with a story about Todd Browning. Please. Which is, Please. he made a film that I love called The Unholy Three. Uh, this was uh, with Victor McLaughlin and with John Barrymore and a very famous uh, little person named uh, Harry Earls who... Um, they formed a group of people that would um, rob rich people. John Barrymore pretended that he was a woman who owned a pet store, and she would wheel the dwarf in a baby carriage as if he was a dwarf. Uh, I mean, as if he was a baby, they would case the joint of a person who bought one of his bir- one of the birds, and then later that night they would go in with Victor McLaughlin as the heavy to rob them. Um, it's just a very, very uh, telling story. It's, it's so weird. Uh, the ending is just spectacular. And I went to a friend of mine who was an executive at MGM at the time and said, I want to do a remake of The Unholy Three. And so she said, well, let's get some executives together and we'll take a look at it. Much to my consternation, I did not know it, but Todd Browning did a remake of The Unholy Three with sound.
1: Oh, uh, oh,
0: okay. And it's a terrible film. <laughs> it has, It is just not anywhere near the emotional heights and tension that the, and I sat through the film. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't stop the film. And of course, afterwards everybody said, well, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> um, so I got close, but that was, that was my dream.
1: Would you say that, uh, and, we'll, and we'll wrap it up a second. What, what are your thoughts on, uh, I mean, maybe it's specific to that filmmaker, but, uh, did we lose something when, when, when sound came in? Was it, was there a, is there something fundamental that we've lost?
0: Well, um, you know, it, you, you met, you said it earlier, Alex, and Ryan was talking about it too, when we were talking about, um, you know, digital film and losing something. Uh, but as you said, the, uh, the, the cat's out of the bag. Um, so um Uh, You know, sound changed things. There was something beautiful about cinema without sound. The class that I teach that you took, Alex, where where they do their first two projects without any sound at all. I'm telling you, the students fight me tooth and nail. Can I put in this? I can't Uh, No, zero. Zippo. No sound at all. And to tell a visual story is not easy to do. And once you do it, you exercise a muscle in your brain that you will then carry throughout your entire career. Uh, So forcing students to do that much the way silent films forced cinema at its early age to tell a visual story. Um, I think it served its purpose. And of course, sound is, you know, uh, of course, if you listen to Lucas and THX, uh, you know, it's a very important part of the movie.
1: Exactly. Well, listen, thank you so much for, for all this. I, I've learned a ton. I continue to learn from you. Uh, This was a real pleasure. Um, I, Brian, do you have any other questions, comments?
2: No, I, I, the same way. I mean, I, I, I'm glad that we're getting back because I think for us, when we are on set, we have movies from the 70s and 80s that you know people, young folks that we work with don't necessarily know that we're like, what? Yes,
1: we, and, we, and, we set up a shot. We were making a film together and I said, yeah, let's do a little Rosemary's Baby homage. And they said, what's Rosemary's Baby? And, and uh, <laughs> I think
2: in that same vein, like I never had seen Salome, and I didn't. I I had seen Freaks before, but I think it was more on the notion of like this was in the zeitgeist, and it's kind of one of those things you should see. And I have of course seen Saul Dracula, but going back and reading about Todd, um, Browning, it, yeah, Todd Browning is just uh, it, you know, this these are guys born in the you know the late yeah, 1800s. I mean even like
1: yeah, like a Hitchcock. I mean these these guys that bridged from like even you like stage plays into vaudeville into into burgeoning films and uh, it's just
2: it's it just i'm getting educated and i appreciate and that's what's amazing
1: this film is almost 100 years old you know and still we can relate and we can there's something to be learned and appreciated so thank you for turning us on thanks turning our listeners on to that and uh and thank you just personally for everything i mean you really were an inspiration you continue to be an inspiration and uh and I'm glad you continue to, to turn people on to film every day at, uh, at NYU. Uh, can we promote any of your current projects? I know we should... Uh, Fundamentals of Film Directing, which is uh, not only a, a, a book for academics, but for film lovers. It's a great way to deconstruct the art form and and understand and get more appreciation for film. Is there any... Any other projects you're working on right now? You want to toot your horn? Nah,
0: people want to read my novels: Sleep One Hundred One, Sleep Two Hundred One, Sleep Three Hundred One. Nice, a lot and, of fun and possibly to read, a uh,
1: film coming out of a Chinese a Chinese American co production: Sleep One Hundred One, Sleep Two Hundred One, Sleep Three Hundred One. Correct. Fingers oh, crossed. Fingers crossed. And if you have the means, uh, we highly recommend his classes. at <laughs> <for you. laughs> Yes, yes. And you'll, we'll, we'll, we'll give a link to the application for the NYU film program. Um, anyway, thank you so much, David. This was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us, everyone. This is How I Got Greenlit. I am Alex Collegian with my co-host, Ryan Gibson.
2: Thanks, everybody.
1: So that was part two of David Irving. Uh, and his selected film, Todd Browning's Freaks. Um, you know, it's it's great to reconnect with uh, your influences. Um, I highly recommend it. Obviously, our parents are probably the first, and good or bad, and then uh, we move on down the line. But um, it's nice to check in because I realize, um, you know, give or take, I was the age I am now when I met David Irving. So you kind of see it from his perspective now, right? It's almost like when I had kids, you, you understand, you get an instant empathy for parents everywhere. And I kind of, I get him now, you know, and, or at least a little bit more of him. And as always, please like, subscribe, interact with this thing, thumbs up, stars, God forbid, an actual comment because that's uh, the coin of the realm. It tells the pewter that uh, you care about us and we care about you and then they can um, monetize the love that we share. So uh, anything you can do is greatly appreciated. Reach out and touch us at uh, How I Got Greenlit on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and at How I Got Greenlit at gmail as well as our website how i got greenlit.com for all your how i got greenlit audio needs we got an archive of stuff there folks come and check it out hope you discovered it right now and you tuned in to this very last second but as always thanks for playing i'm alex collegian and this is how i got greenlit